Life's Everyday Mystery Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Sorry about that. I think we had some uh, technical difficulty. Uh, you know, as they say, when you live by technology, you die by technology. Um, in any case, I was uh, telling you about uh, celebrating National Magic Day today. And the reason we do that is to commemorate the unfortunate death of Harry Houdini on October 31st, 1926. And uh, there was an interesting Montreal and uh, McGill connection to, to that death. Houdini would uh, give speeches about uh, unmasking the fake spiritualists and about the importance of critical thinking to university students in uh, every city where he performed. And in 1926, he did that in Montreal, and he was speaking at the McGill Student Union, which now is the McCord Museum, and told students about the importance of uh, going by evidence and he tried to foster critical thinking uh, there was a student uh, uh, by the name of smiley in the audience who drew a picture of of harry during that lecture and uh, presented it to him after the performance houdini then asked him to come backstage to the princess theater the next day to do a more formal portrait which uh, happened and while that portrait was being drawn there was a knock on the door from a McGill student by the name of Whitehead who returned a book to Houdini he had borrowed. In that book, Houdini had stated how he could withstand a punch to the stomach. And uh, Whitehead asked him, is that true? And Houdini was sitting at his desk ask, answering fan mail. He wasn't paying much attention. And Whitehead uh, took that grunt as, okay, go ahead. And he punched him in the stomach and that had, uh, uh, devastating consequences. It apparently led to parenthitis from um, uh, burst uh, appendix. And um, uh, Houdini had not had time to properly prepare himself. And uh, thus were the consequences. Unfortunately, uh, he passed away days later. Uh, they had gone to uh, Detroit, where he did perform uh, once more, although he had to quit because the pain was too much and he died in a Detroit uh, hospital on October 31st, uh, the most appropriate day for a magician to pass away on. So anyway, that's why we celebrate National uh, Magic Day on um, October 31st, together with uh, Halloween. And uh, generally, we tell stories uh, about uh, magicians of bygone eras, and also duplicate some of the feats that Houdini performed. I've done that on many occasions over the years, uh, various magic tricks on October 31st. Uh, this year, it's more difficult to do that, of course, because we're not doing too many live uh, performances. But I did uh, try to perform a Houdini uh, effect on uh, on Friday on my uh, uh, daily Kappa Joe videos, for which you can sign up. All you have to do is send me an email at joe.schwartz at mcgill.ca, and I'll put you on the list. And I showed uh, one uh, of the Houdini type of escapes, although, of course, I had to use a rather small-scale version to uh, make, make that point. Uh, also, of course, we talk about uh, former ma magicians on this day. And uh, the show today, I will uh, talk about two of them. I'll tell you about Doug Henning, who, of course, was a Canadian magician and uh, one of my favorites until his untimely passing at age of uh, 52 uh, 
uh, in the year 2000. Uh, he was uh, uh, just a, a great, great uh, performer. And uh, uh, of course, over the years, there have been so many outstanding magicians. I mean, numerous books have been written about them. But I'll also uh, tell you about uh, one who was an unusual magician and one that uh, you may not have heard of, uh, Marvin Roy, who went by the name of Mr. Electric, who passed away uh, in July of last year of 2020. And he had just a, a, a marvelous uh, act, which uh, has not been uh, <laughs> paralleled uh, ever because indeed it was just uh, uh, too difficult to perform. However, we will also have our uh, usual uh, questions that I will uh, uh, put to you. And uh, so let me just uh, start, start with those. How many droplets does a raspberry have? How many droplets does a raspberry have? If you know the answer to that, 514-790-0800. 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. And uh, let me pose a second uh, question to you. Obviously, again, a scientific question. Why is burning sugarcane bagasse? Of course, you'll have to know what sugarcane bagasse is. Why is burning that more friendly to the environment than burning any petroleum-based fuel? Petroleum-based fuel, of course, would be gasoline. It would be home uh, heating oil. Uh, we'll also put coal into that category. So why is burning uh, bagasse, which is, well, you have to know what it is. We call it sugarcane bagasse. Why is that more friendly to the environment than burning a petroleum-based fuel? So we'll start with those questions. And uh, when we come back, uh, I'm going to talk about Halloween. I'm going to talk about uh, magic and uh, hopefully entertain you. But in the meantime, we're going to check traffic. And after that, we'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Sorry about the technical difficulties at the beginning of the show today. Maybe the gremlins were unleashed by the psychics and the spiritualists who I criticized uh, last Tuesday during our uh, Trottier Public Science Symposium, which took place last Monday and Tuesday. On Monday, we heard from uh, Dr. Paul Offit about COVID, uh, followed by uh, Carrie Northey, a mortician. And then on Tuesday night, uh, uh, we heard from Dr. Leslie Fellows about the function of the brain, and I finished it off by talking about uh, whether we can talk to the dead. And of course, I did in that talk criticize psychics and spiritualists uh, who use fraudulent methods to try to convince people that they have raised the curtain on the other world. Uh, so maybe they got into the game and somehow put their powers to use to try to mess up up. Okay, anyway, we're over that. And you can watch the uh, Public Science Symposium, which I think was very interesting, uh, recorded. And all you have to do is go to our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash McGillOSS. And you will find all four sessions there for your 
entertainment. All right, let me just get back to uh, Doug Henning, who I mentioned I was going to talk about. Uh, Doug uh, was a magician extraordinaire. He passed away in 2000 from uh, liver cancer, and he was only 52 years old. But he had squeezed a lot of living into those years and accomplished a great deal. And I like to talk about him because he actually inspired me, believe it or not, chemically. I first saw Doug Henning on Broadway in 1974 when he was starring in a wonderful production entitled The Magic Show. This was not the staid old magician dressed in tails, pulling rabbits out of hats and coins out of thin air. He looked alive in colorful costumes, and the show was full of humor, music, and great illusions. But above all, he was imaginative. NBC recognized Doug's talents and signed him to mesmerize people with this particular form of magic. In just one hour on TV, more people watched Doug Henning than watched Houdini throughout his entire career. Of course, I was one of them. His TV shows were amazing. He recreated Houdini's water torture escape, vanished elephants, and performed super sleight of hand feats. But what I really enjoyed was his presentation of the sands of the desert. Duck came on stage with a large bowl of water, which he stirred with his hands and magically turned it black. Then he placed handfuls of different colored sand in the bowl and gave the whole mess a big mix. After showing his hands empty, he reached into the bowl, mucked around a little, withdrew his hands and allowed dry sand to flow from each hand. Not only was the sand dry, but he had apparently separated the different colors. He then stirred the bowl again and the dark water became clear. No sand was to be seen in the bowl. Thunders applause followed. It was clear to me that there was a chemical phenomenon involved here. I also had an idea what it was. It didn't take long to figure it out. Tannic acid reacts with ferric chloride to form a dark blue complex. Indeed, this reaction at one time was extensively used to make ink. So I figured Doug must have had some ferric chloride in the water and secretly add a tannic acid to make it dark. This dark complex is readily decomposed by adding an acid such as citric acid when clearing is desired. I'm pretty sure that's how Doug did it. But what about dumping the sand in the water and taking it out dry? Well, you know that magicians don't give away their secrets. So let that remain a mystery and a tribute to Doug Henning. I'll give you a clue though. There is some very interesting chemistry that is involved. And I know that because I have inspired by Doug Henning performed the sands of the desert many times in our own version of a chemistry magic show. Okay, let me just repeat the questions and I'm looking for answers. How many droplets does a raspberry have? And why is burning sugar bagasse? more friendly to the environment than burning based fuel. Let me just uh, uh, talk a little bit about COVID-19 because uh, we can't let a week go by without uh, referring to that plague. Um, this week we had uh, the publication, The Lancet, of a paper, a very interesting paper uh, about fluvoxamine. Fluvoxamine is an antidepressant that has long been used. It's a classic treatment for OCD, for example. It's a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. 
and it is uh, you know one of many uh, drugs in that uh, in that class. However, people began to report uh, last year that if they were taking uh, fluvoxamine uh, as an antidepressant, they also experienced some improvement in some inflammatory conditions uh, such as uh, arthritis. Well, this made people think of whether or not fluvoxamine might be useful in the treatment of COVID-19 because one of the complications of that infection is that uh, there is a, an overreaction by the body's immune system. And uh, that overreaction is what causes some terrible symptoms. So the possibility arose of whether or not uh, giving uh, uh, patients who had been diagnosed with COVID-19 who were symptomatic, whether giving them um, uh, fluvoxamine, which is the, uh, the trade name of that is Luvox, whether or not that would uh, protect them from having to end up in the hospital. In this very interesting uh, paper published in, um, in The Lancet, um, Ed Mills and other researchers associated with McMaster University, which of course is in Canada, uh, were part of, of, of the study. The study actually took place in Brazil and um, they enrolled subjects who had been diagnosed uh, with uh, symptomatic COVID-19 based on a positive test. And uh, these were all patients who had not previously been vaccinated. So of course, we're looking at a very selected uh, population there. And they were randomized into taking either a placebo or a number of other possible treatments, including hydroxychloroquine, including ivermectin, and uh, also including fluvoxamine. Well, it turns out that fluvoxamine was the only one to show any kind of potential benefit. Hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin were useless. No surprise, because many other studies had, had come to the same conclusion. But with uh, fluvoxamine, uh, the results were interesting. 30% of the patients uh, were prevented from ending up in, uh, in hospital because of the COVID infection. Now, of course, uh, it's not uh, a miracle but uh, it's cer certainly trending in the right direction. So what are we to make of this? Uh, is that this is another potential weapon in the fight against this uh, terrible affliction, that if someone is diagnosed with having symptoms of COVID-19 and has a positive test so that uh, physicians know that that is exactly what they are suffering from, then uh, they may be a candidate for uh, the administration of fluvoxamine to try to keep them out of the uh, hospital. As I've said so many times, though, in reference to many, many other situations, one never places a tremendous amount of emphasis on one study, no matter how well it is carried out. There's always a need to reproduce the study. But this seems to have been a very large study because there were over 700 subjects that were involved and it was statistically sound. And uh, there, uh, really may be something to uh, preventing people from ending up in the hospital by the use of uh, fluvoxamine. Of course, uh, uh, around the world, numerous drugs are being, quote, repurposed uh, to try to see whether or not they work against COVID-19, because there's nothing that so far works really well. So here we have another weapon that is uh, being added to the armamentarium, but obviously it can only be done when uh, administered by a physician. 
and uh, uh, it's an interesting finding, but of course we will have to see whether or not it is corroborated by uh, other uh, tests. But in the meantime, yet one more possibility for keeping people out of the hospital. Okay, we're going to take a break for the CTV news. And after that, we'll be back to talk about Mr. Electric, Marvin Roy, and also about witchcraft. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Is there anything more closely associated with Halloween than a broom, a black hat, and a witch's pointy hat? I don't think so. So what better time than now to investigate the connections between witchcraft and science? Human nature features a fascinating characteristic. When something goes wrong, we try to rationalize why the calamity has occurred. We try to find the cause of our illness or misfortune. Today, many people point accusing fingers at pesticides, food additives, or electromagnetic radiation as possible culprits that may undermine our health. In less sophisticated times, witchcraft was deemed to be responsible. Natural disasters and physical ailments were thought to be due to spells cast by those in league with the devil. Then as now, people feared what they did not understand, and they did not understand witchcraft. Oh, witches did exist or at least people labeled as witches existed. Who were they? Mostly women who were denied access to formal education and secretly began to dabble in a strange mix of botany, primitive pharmacology, and superstition. Muttering incantations, they blended herbs, plants, and animal parts in bubbling cauldrons to produce medicines, love potions, or poisons as needed. Some of the ingredients could indeed cure or kill. Others distorted sensual perceptions. As a result, witches were held both in awe and fear, and the superstitious medieval mind readily accepted suggestions that human misery was caused by the casting of evil spells. Why? Because if this were the case, then at least something could be done about the situation. People were masters of their destiny. If only they could search out and destroy the witch, the spell would be lifted. And so from the 15th to the 17th century, some 200,000 innocent people were burned, drowned, or tortured to death with the hope of relieving the world from suffering. Bizarre tests were devised to identify witches. In some cases, the accused would be prodded with a sharp instrument to determine if they felt pain. Supposedly, any spot on the body insensitive to pain was a devil's mark. Since witch hunters got paid on a per capita basis, they often invented gimmicked prods, which appeared to pierce the skin, but actually did not. There was no pain, and another witch was discovered. Witch hunters also claimed to be able to find witches by examining their bodies for witches' teats, T-E-A-T-S. These were supposedly abnormal outgrowths used to suckle the devil. Many an unfortunate woman with warts, pimples, or hemorrhoids ended up at the stake. The swimming test was also widely used. 
the suspected witch was thrown into water with bound hands and feet. If she floated, it was assumed that she had the ability to reduce her weight as required for flying. She was declared a witch and dealt with appropriately. If she sank, she was innocent. Well, talk about double jeopardy. From the beginning of the 16th to the end of the 18th century, the city of Odewater in Holland actually featured an official weighing house which offered certificates of acquittal from witchcraft. Attendants would weigh subjects and use a complex formula to determine whether their weight was unnatural. If it was not, they would get an attestation absolving them from the stigma of unnatural weight. Men and women came from all over Europe to be certified as legitimate humans. Business was good, probably due to the fact that the formula used found everyone's weight to be natural. Black cats were also caught up in the witch hunting frenzy. This all started in the 1560s when a man and his son were startled by a shadowy animal darting across their path at night. They got scared and began to throw rocks at the creature, but stopped when they saw it was only a black cat. They watched as the injured animal limped under the house of an elderly spinster believed by villagers to be a witch. The next morning, the two men were startled when they saw the same woman limp down the street. Surely she had sustained this injury when she was prowling around at night in the form of a black cat. And thus, the enduring connection between witches and black cats was born. If black cats were witches in disguise, they had to be hunted down and killed. And they were by the thousands. This had the unfortunate consequence of increasing the rat population and spreading the plague. Since the plague was supposed to be the work of witches, more unlucky people all over Europe were accused, rounded up, and annihilated. In Spain, during the Inquisition, suspected witches were humiliated by being forced to wear conical pointed hats during their trial. This practice likely gave rise to the common stereotype of the witch in the black pointed hat. Not everyone bought into the madness. In fact, in 1564, Johannes Weyer, a Swiss physician, directed a scathing attack against the, quote, uninformed and unskilled physicians who relegate all the incurable diseases, the remedy for which they overlook, to witchcraft. To prove his point, he even investigated the most celebrated possession cases of the times, namely that of the nuns of Cologne. Apparently, some of these nuns had experienced rapturous fits which were interpreted by those who heard the strange sounds as possession by demons. Weyer discovered a much more mundane explanation. It seems that the nuns were being visited by some neighborhood lads who introduced the ladies to some decidedly earthly delights. Weyer used this example to suggest that common explanations for apparent mysteries should be explored before supernatural ones were invoked. Amen to that. Weyer's ideas were reinforced 20 years later by Reginald Scott in his classic book, Discovery of Witchcraft, a work specifically written to combat the witch hunting craze. Scott was dismayed by what was happening. Even street conjurers were being accused of witchcraft since such miracles, quote, could only be performed with the aid of the devil. The discovery of witchcraft actually turned out to be an expose 
of many a conjurer's secret in order to demonstrate that such tricks were performed without any supernatural intervention. Scott showed how rice could be transferred magically from one container to another, how a burned card could be reproduced from the pocket, and how a means of an illusion, a man could be decapitated and his head restored. Unfortunately, King James I believed in witchcraft and ordered all copies of the book destroyed. The king went on to hang more witches than any other monarch in history. The boiling cauldron made famous by Shakespeare and Macbeth was an appropriate symbol for witchcraft. It was herein that the various magical ingredients were blended. In reality, the likely components were belladonna, henbake, mandrake, or monkshood instead of eye of newt and toe of frog. These plants contain compounds such as atropine and aconitine, which in the right dose can produce various physiological effects ranging from the sensation of death to that of flying. In the 15th century, artists began to depict nude witches flying through the air astride their broomsticks. According to some historians, this image was suggested by the practice of rubbing a broomstick with belladonna extract and maneuvering it in such a way that the active hallucinogenic ingredient, atropine, would be absorbed into the bloodstream through the sensitive genital tissues. So in a fashion, witches really did fly. Well, now maybe you know more about witches than uh, you ever thought uh, you would know. But it's fascinating to take a look at uh, history. And um, of course, another classic example were the Salem witch trial, where 21 people were unfortunately put to death, being accused of witches uh, purely uh, because some little girls had believed the stories that were told to them uh, by a West Indian slave who had entertained them with tales of black magic. Very sad story. We'll check traffic and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. Reginald Scott's book. Uh, the discovery of witchcraft, which is an absolute classic uh, of critical thinking and, uh, you know, advising people about how they can be taken in. Uh, obviously, uh, the uh, original editions of that book are unbelievably expensive, but the book has been reprinted and you can buy a cheap uh, reprint of it. Uh, I think I got mine on, on Amazon, but uh, if you just Google the discovery of witchcraft uh, by Reginald Scott, uh, you will find it. And it makes for really very interesting uh, reading. I uh, mentioned, well, let me just give my questions once more because they seem to be giving you a lot of difficulty. How many droplets does a raspberry have? And why is burning sugarcane bagasse more friendly to the environment than burning petroleum-based fuel? 514-790-800, or you can text your answers to 514-800. 
I want to tell you about Marvin Roy, magician and illusionist who was known as Mr. Electric. He died uh, in July of 2020 in, in Los Angeles. His performances could only be described as electrifying. There's just no other way. The stage lights dimmed and the music rose toward a crescendo as Mr. Electric picked up a thousand watt light bulb and held it aloft in his bare hands. On the count of three, the bulb flashed, illuminating the stage. No connections, no wires, no batteries, pure magic. Ample oohs and ahs from the audience that had just witnessed Marvin Roy's hallmark effect. What audience, take your pick, could have been the Lido in Paris, the Stardust in Las Vegas, the Palladium in London, or dozens of other venerable theaters around the world? Beginning in the 1950s and for half a century, Marvin and Carol Roy's electric magic put a charge into audiences around the world. Ed Sullivan not only paid an unprecedented $2,500 for the act, but took the couple to the Soviet Union as part of a cultural exchange program. Perhaps the greatest honor that can be heaped on Marvin Roy is that his act has never been copied, an almost unheard of phenomenon in the field of magic where imitation is rampant. Why hasn't it been copied? Simple, the act was just too difficult and too dangerous. Several hours were required to set up the eight minute performance to say nothing of the hundreds of hours of practice required. Besides lighting a giant bulb in his hands, Mr. Electric pulled a variety of lit bulbs from a top hat, magically materialized a chandelier and produced Carol inside a giant working bulb. As a finale, a string of dozens of glowing bulbs emerged from Marvin's mouth, colorfully spanning the stage. Recognition by one's peers is perhaps the most significant tribute for a magician, especially when it happens in Las Vegas, the magic capital of the world. Fittingly, in light of 50 years of magical illumination, uh, the Vegas chapter of the International Brotherhood of Magicians paid homage to Marvin Roy. He was 83 years old at the time. In 2008, he was recognized as Magician of the Year. And that was very appropriate because uh, light bulbs and energy requirements were a very hot topic uh, in those days. So was wireless energy transfer. And of course, we still talk about this all the time. Amazingly, 50 years before researchers at MIT published a paper in the journal Science describing the lighting of a 60 watt bulb from two meters away, Roy was using a wireless energy transfer system to light a 1,000-watt bulb and later a 5,000-watt bulb. The MIT scientists used a phenomenon known as resonant coupling, which has a great deal of potential for efficient wireless energy transfer. Just imagine no power lines in the street, no high-voltage towers dotting the countryside, no tangles of wires behind computers. Certainly, Mr. Electric knew nothing about resonant coupling, so how did he become featured on billboards as the man who lights a thousand watt light bulb with his bare hand. How did he do it? I tell you honestly, I don't know. Of course, even if I did, I couldn't tell. Magicians code, you know, you don't reveal the secret, never tell. But what I can tell you is that long before Roy's stage performance made headlines around the world, Nikola Tesla may have performed a far more impressive feat. 
1899 in Colorado Springs using a device that generated 100 million volts of very high frequency current, Tesla lit up a bank of 200 light bulbs at a distance of 26 miles. I actually, I say may have, because although the event is widely reported in books and articles about Tesla, there seems to be no reliable eyewitness account of that epic moment. While Tesla's wireless lighting of the bulbs 26 miles away is questionable, there's no doubt that a high voltage coil uh, can be used to light the fluorescent tube in its vicinity. And Tesla himself demonstrated this effect in many public uh, presentations. And today it is standard fare in many science museums. It seems absolutely magical. So it comes as little surprise that magicians have adapted the Tesla coil for the stage. Mental power effect is commercially available and allows the performers to place a fluorescent tube on a special table and pretend to light it by the power of the mind. Neat trick, but not nearly as impressive as the floating light bulb created by robotics expert Jeff Lieberman for an exhibit in Barcelona. Those of you versed in magic will think, so what? Harry Blackstone thrilled audiences with his floating light bulb 75 years ago. But that was different, battery powered and lots of elaborate rigging. Lieberman's bulb really floats in midair, thanks to a concealed magnet in the bulb and a nearby electromagnet. And it is lit wirelessly using hidden receiving and transmitting coils, very much in the fashion of recharging an electric toothbrush. Principle is inductive coupling. When a current flows through a coiled wire, it induces a magnetic field around the wire, placing a second coil in the magnetic field then induces a current in that wire. In the case of the toothbrush, this induced current charges the battery. In case of the light bulb, it causes the filament to glow. Interesting, but still not quite as captivating as Mr. Electric's barehanded heroics. Especially on that evening back in 1998 at the fabulous Palm Strength Follies, when the magician literally set himself on fire while performing the thousand watt trick. Seeing smoke billowing from the performance pants, quick thinking stagehands doused him with a champagne bucket full of ice water. After Marvin had cooled down, a clever MC capitalizing on the scenario brought him out for a curtain call as the man who sets himself and his butt on fire nightly. Well, it wasn't exactly nightly, but Mr. Electric was burned on many occasions performing the wireless bob stunt. Oh, if he were still performing today, the environmental correctness would dictate a switch to safer, energy-saving, compact fluorescent lights. But uh, would Mr. Electric then have to worry about problems such as migraines, lethargy, or skin rashes that some claim can be attributed to the newfangled light bulbs? I doubt it. Anyway, so in celebration of National Magic Day, you learned today about... uh, Uh, some of Houdini's antics, you learned about witches, and we pay tribute to Doug Henning and to Marvin Roy, great magicians of the past. Uh, Please uh, take a look at www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. That's our website. You can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. And if you go to youtube.com slash OSS. You can take a look at all our videos, including a special Halloween video of a program called 
dose of science that we performed this past week, and also the Trottier Public Science Symposium lectures of last Monday and Tuesday. And of course, we'll be back with you same time, same station, right here next week, hopefully without any gremlins in the electronics. And I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>